Let's see, you know where to turn in your Bibles tonight, right? Go to John 11. We'll finish up this chapter. It's been a joy to be with you uh, for two Lord's Days and four worship services, and I trust the ministry of the Word uh, has been a blessing, a help uh, to you. It's a joy for me to preach here because it's always good to preach where people appreciate the Word and receive it well, and you are that kind of congregation. Well, we're coming tonight to look at what I've called the aftermath of Lazarus's resurrection. We'll be looking at verses 45 to 57. We actually considered verse 45 this morning, but we'll consider the second part of the statement that's established there that's recorded in verse 46. But beginning at verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, that is after Lazarus had been raised, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. New life for Lazarus meant death threats for Jesus. From the day that Lazarus came forth from the tomb, the Jewish high council as verse 53 says, made plans to put him to death. A lot of irony there, isn't it? We're going to kill a man who raised a man to life. On one level, it's hard for us to comprehend this, isn't it? This court that met did not deny that Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. They didn't send forth word disputing the resurrection of Jesus' friend as bogus, as untrue. They couldn't get away with that. This is something they couldn't deny. They couldn't dispute. They couldn't debate because something miraculous happened. 
and it occurred openly and publicly. On another level, it's not hard to understand this because we understand something about total depravity, the utter depravity of man. So we should not be shocked that egotistical and wicked men would turn away from the truth in order to maintain their position in society. And of course, that is exactly what happened. But God is able to turn the wicked deeds of evil men to further his glory. And another stroke of irony here, even the high priest of Israel unwittingly prophesied that the death of Jesus would result in the salvation of the people of God. So in spite of himself, Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, this council points us to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, to the centrality of the cross in our redemption. So in these verses before us, the Apostle John draws our attention to the aftermath of Lazarus's resurrection. I want you to think of three words as we frame this passage to try to understand it. Sell out, bail out, walk out. First part of the aftermath of Lazarus's resurrection is a sellout. A sellout by informers. Some who were witnesses of the miracle went immediately to tell the Pharisees. The Pharisees, we know, were antagonistic to Jesus. And it seems this crowd of people who went to tell them what had happened were antagonistic also. They knew what the Pharisees would do with this news. So this is a sellout. We've seen what many of the Jews who stood with Mary at the tomb of Lazarus did when they saw him come forth from the grave. They believed in Jesus. Having witnessed his great power, they put their faith in him, acknowledging him to be the Christ of God. They had come to join Mary in mourning the death of her brother, but their mourning turned into joy when they observed this supernatural power of God on display, which brought their brother back to life. But that wasn't the only reaction. The other reaction is recorded in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It is truly astonishing that these people who were eyewitnesses of this event did not believe themselves, but went to act as tattletales to inform these religious leaders what was taking place. A miracle had been performed before their very eyes, but they refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Now again, they didn't deny what they saw. They simply ignored the evidence. They somehow rationalized it and convinced themselves that it was meaningless. And so it was a sellout of their own souls as well as a sellout of Jesus. 
Now, there are some commentators who try to be charitable to these people who went to tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done. But I think the context makes it clear that their intent was hostile. They didn't go to the Pharisees with the hope that the Pharisees would believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that the Pharisees were enemies of Jesus, and so they wished to inform the enemies of Jesus what he had done. And so they're just bearing the latest news to the biggest enemy uh, that Jesus had, a group of enemies, the, the, the Pharisees. They didn't go to try to win them over. The Pharisees, of course, were looking for something that they might use to stop Jesus. And it didn't matter if the report uh, contained the most sublime of miracles. If it could be used to bring to an end the ministry of Jesus, they would utilize it. Word was taken to the Pharisees because the informers knew they would take action against Jesus. We can learn from this event that no amount of evidence will ever convince those who are wickedly determined to reject the claims of Jesus. Now, they might be converted yet, like the Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus, but they will not be converted because of mountains of evidence. Homer Kent said, this response of unbelief in the face of the clearest proof is confirmation of Christ's teaching in Luke 16:31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And then Mr. Kent adds, the chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, but a heart in rebellion against the authority of God and his word. And so this miracle, instead of producing soft hearts and enlightened minds, produced hard hearts and cold minds or closed minds. Well, that's a sellout. Second thing I would point out is a bailout. There was a sellout by these informers. There's now a bailout by the religious Leaders, after receiving word from the witnesses of what Jesus had done, raising a man from the grave, the Pharisees took this matter to the chief priest and they assembled the, account, the council in order to decide what should be done. And in the end, they bailed out on their responsibilities as the spiritual leaders of Israel. Now, this part of the story is presented to us in three stages. We first see their deliberation. That is, the council convenes and they discuss the situation. They were confronted with a problem. It had been brought to them, and now they had to find a solution. So note what John writes in verses 47 and 48. <clears throat> so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's this report that's come and they're gathering for a discussion. This word council is the word Sanhedrin. We often refer to it as that. That's the Jewish high court. This council consisted of the chief priests, most of whom were Sadducees, and the Sadducees denied there was a resurrection, but it also consisted of Pharisees who affirmed the teaching of Scripture about the resurrection. These parties, which were often in conflict, were not when it came to dealing with Jesus. These parties allied themselves together to oppose their common enemy, Jesus. So despite their differences, their mutual hatred of Jesus brought them together to take action against him. Again, this Sanhedrin, this council, was the highest ruling body in Israel. They were, at this time, of course, under the authority, the rule of Rome, but they were given much latitude in uh, Jewish law to make decisions regarding, Jew regarding Jewish law. The council was a combination of legislative, executive, and judicial authority. We know it consisted of 70 members. That's modeled after Moses who appointed 70 elders, Numbers chapter 11. And so this high council always labored to retain the favor of the people, but at the same time, they were courting the favor of the Roman governor. Well, a problem was brought up at this specially called business meeting. The council was in a quandary. What were they to do? And that's the question put on the table. What are we to do? And then a challenge stated for this man performs many signs no denial that he did that but here's what they reason if we let him go on like this everybody's going to believe on him and if people go believing on him the romans are going to come take away our place our positions of prestige and authority and they're going to take away our nation too well you would have think they would have said you know it's a good thing that God has sent someone who does many miraculous signs like he does. That's good. That's wonderful, isn't it? What should they have done? Lifted up their voices in praise unto God for sending the promised Messiah. But no, they found a reason why this miracle worker could not be allowed to continue. Because if we let him go on like this, we're going to lose our positions. People are going to believe in him. They won't be dependent on us. They're going to follow him. And, and we're going to get in trouble with the Roman government. So we've got to stop Jesus. We've got to stop him. The Romans are going to regard this as an uprising. And we'll be in big trouble. The Romans would crack down on a messianic uprising. And that would mean loss of personal status for them. So Jesus, re, 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 uh, Jesus threatened the status quo. 
And these men didn't want to lose their position. They wanted power. They wanted prestige. They wanted to keep these high places of privilege. And so they rejected Jesus. So there's the deliberation. Second, there's a proposition. It's verses 49 to 52. The leader of the Jewish high council, Caiaphas, stepped forward with a proposal. He had a plan to rid themselves of the problem caused by Jesus that would allow them to retain their position. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. He was appointed, history tells us, as high priest in A.D. 18. And he served that position until A.D. 36. He followed his father-in-law, Annas, who was high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And he continued to retain sufficient power and influence. We see that in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. That Caiaphas was high priest that year means he was the high priest at that critical time in the history of Israel. And so this man, this leader, presents an expedient solution to the problem they face with Jesus. But before he offered that solution, we note here how he scolded the members of the council. He told them, you know nothing. One of the commentators says a modern equivalent of his response would have been something like this. Give me a break. Now that was before Joe Biden made that popular. Give me a break. You people are clueless. You know nothing. So clearly he's annoyed that they couldn't craft a solution to the problem. And so before he offers his proposal, he expressed his frustration with their indecisiveness. But then he offered a solution. What was it? He argued that it would be better for them and for the nation if they got Jesus out of the way by killing him. And here's how John puts it. Verse 50. Do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people? Not that the whole nation should perish. What's he saying? It's expedient. It is pragmatic that we do this. We get rid of the problem by getting rid of the person. And that is how we save our nation. That was the Council of Caiaphas. He recommended the elimination of Jesus. Remove Jesus by killing him. Remove him permanently from the scene. Problem solved. Or so they thought. If they would but sacrifice Jesus, they would retain favor with the Roman government and they would hold on to their privileged positions. Gordon Keaty says, pragmatism came before principle and expediency before justice. Worse still, God and his scripture did not figure in his reasoning. There was no appeal to truth, no evidence of spiritual commitment 
to the God of their fathers, but only policy and politics, power and position, which must be maintained by hook or by crook. And that was the position of the high priest of Israel. Another writer said, power, religion, was in the saddle. There was no place for the truth. How much are we like Caiaphas today? Do we look to the scriptures for answers to our problems? Or do we adopt pragmatic and expedient solutions? Oh, we pray that God will help us to stand firm on the authority of his word. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the Apostle John, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, follows this summation of Caiaphas's proposal to the Sanhedrin with a theological note. He tells us that a lot more was going on with Caiaphas's proposal than the high priest himself even realized. Jesus would die for the nation, but that wasn't so that the members of the council could retain their position, but in order to save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't die to save that corrupt regime. He died to redeem sinners. He wasn't there to preserve this godless group of men. It was his mission to come and call out God's elect. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes unto me I will in no wise cast out. Notice how John puts it, verses 51 and 52. He, that is Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. Isn't that interesting that John used that word? He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas is prophesying, but not in a theological way. He was thinking politically. He's thinking in terms of sacrifice that would save their position. But John says, ironically, that his words were an unwitting prophecy on his part. That Jesus would die, and by dying, he would save sinners. And notice, he would not only die for the nation, that is, Jews, but verse 52 says, in order to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus' death is the only way for people to be saved from sin, Jew or Gentile. The Lamb of God must be slain in order to bring about salvation. So John sees a deeper meaning 
in Caiaphas's word. He actually sees a double meaning. And the parallel is amazing because Caiaphas used sacrificial language. Verse 50, one man should die for the people. That little preposition for is the one that's often used in the New Testament. It says Christ died for our sins. It's a word of substitution, to die in the place of, to die on behalf of. Now, Caiaphas didn't mean it in the theological sense of substitute, but he is thinking Jesus would be a scapegoat that would spare the nation. And so all that we need to do is sacrifice one life and everything else is saved. We'll do away with Jesus and our problem will disappear. But there's a deeper meaning. There's this double meaning and it's inescapable. Jesus would soon go to the cross to die for the sins of his people and included would not only be Jews, but as he says in, in uh, John 10, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. We believe that to mean Gentiles as well. It's all whom the Father gave to him would be effectually called by the Spirit and brought to faith in the Son of God. Uh, as Revelation says, out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Dear friends, this is the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? We are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He died for us. His blood is the price of our redemption. We are set free by his atoning death, by his death and resurrection. John just doesn't, John doesn't bring that part out here, but we know the resurrection of Jesus is part and parcel of the gospel as well. By his death and resurrection, we live. If he doesn't die, we die. But he did die, didn't he? And he freely gave his life in order to save us. In fact, the very next chapter, verse 32, Jesus would say, And when I, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All people without distinction. Red and yellow, black and white. Jew and Gentile. So when Caiaphas referred to the death of Jesus, he meant it as a sacrifice to save their position. But God intended from all eternity that his son would die to save his people from their sins. So the typology is real. Caiaphas prophesied without knowing it. Here's what Richard Phillips says. In the greatest irony, Caiaphas had spoken the truth, although with a meaning that he neither intended or understood. In fact, he would have been horrified to discover that what he said was meant by God for good. This was a murderous policy on his part. And yet, God turns it around to be an unwitting prophecy of the plan of God for his son from eternity to die on the cross. So there's the deliberation, the proposition, 
And note third here, the resolution, verse 53. John records, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We've decided what to do. He needs to die for the nation in order to save our position. And so let's start laying out our plans to put him to death. Now this isn't the first time they plan to do this. You go back to John chapter 5 verse 18. They had entertained this solution before, but now they are earnestly resolved to proceed forthwith. And this was a turning point. They had reached what we would say the point of no return. They passed an official declaration and resolution to bring about the execution, the death of Jesus. They considered the proposition of Caiaphas sound, and so they made it official. They all said, hear, hear. They all cast their vote. They mentioned a trial arresting him in verse 57, but they would arrest him, find him guilty, and then put him to death. Colin Cruz says, the Sanhedrin decided to sacrifice an innocent man to retain their place in the nation. Jesus was ready to sacrifice himself to gather the scattered children of God. Well, we've seen the sellout and the bailout. My third word is walkout. Sell out by the informers, bail out by the religious leaders. Now there's a walkout by the Lord Jesus. Note verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus was on his way to the cross. His purpose in coming into the world was to save the lost but dying for him. But he would go according to God's timetable, not theirs. And of course, one thing we know clearly about Jesus, he lived according to the will of his father, not according to the will of his enemies. So they could not force him to the cross. He would submit himself to death on the cross at the time his father willed it. Up to this point, Jesus had eluded his enemies because his time had not yet come. He had taken appropriate action to secure that his death would occur according to his father's schedule, not theirs. And that's why at this time he leaves uh, Bethany, Jerusalem area, and he goes to a town called Ephraim. Nobody really knows where that town is. A lot of people associate it with Ephraim, mentioned in Second Chronicles 13, verse 19. And if that's the place, it was approximately 12 miles from Jerusalem. And he would stay there until the next chapter, chapter 12, he comes to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. And it would be at the Passover time <coughs> when he would be offered as the lamb and sacrifice for their sins. 
But the people who were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover uh, were looking for Jesus, we read in verse 56. <clears throat> and they were saying to one another as they gathered in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? And so they kept their eyes open to see if he would show up at the feast. Would he come and risk arrest and being put to death? Verse 57 tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees issued a warrant for Jesus' arrest. They said that if anybody knows of his whereabouts, they were to inform them. And failure to comply to these orders could possibly lead to their punishment. So plans were made to arrest Jesus. The proposal was to put him to death. And so now they wait for him to show himself in Jerusalem and show he did at the right time, at the right place, for the right purpose. The 11th chapter of John isn't so much about Lazarus, is it? It's about Jesus. And Lazarus is the means that takes us to Jesus. And seeing Jesus call forth Lazarus from the tomb is a call for us to bow our knee to him. Jesus is the focus of this chapter. So we need to ask ourselves, have I seen him? With the eyes of faith? Have I repented of my sins and cast myself before him in faith, receiving him? If not, we're like the informers who sold him out. If not, we're like the religious leaders who bailed out for their own selfish purposes and ordered that he be put to death. We need to quit making excuses, don't we? We need to quit evading responsibility. And we can be thankful that Jesus has compassion for hurting, grieving people. And he came to help those whom he loved. He came to do a mighty miracle in order to reveal the greater glory of God. And we can come to him and find rest for our souls. He is Lord over death. One of my goals in life has been for a long time. It is more so the older I get. I want to die well. I'm 72. The Lord may give me another 20 years. I don't know. I may die in my sleep tonight. I don't know. But I want to die well. I want to die serving Him, loving Him, believing in Him, worshiping Him, glorifying Him. And we can trust this one because he's Lord over death. Why do we need to fear death? 
No need for us to fear because he is the resurrection and the life. Let us commit our way to him. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this precious portion of Scripture. And you, you meant for us to know about it because there's so many verses, so much print that tells us this story about the death of a man and his resurrection. And we stand in awe of our mighty Savior, who himself was a man, one without sin, one born of a virgin, but one who was a unique man because he was also God. I guess the greatest hyphen between two words is that one between God-man in reference to Jesus. He's fully God and fully man. And so we can bow our knee to him. And we're called to do that and confess that he is Lord, believing that he died on a cross to save us from our sin. He died according to scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and he was seen by many. Oh, what an apologetic. Jesus died and rose again. That he died is proved by his burial. That he rose again is proved by the fact he was seen. And that's the one we are called on to believe. We can understand something about Thomas who said he, he wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus resurrected. His friends had told him that he had been raised. And then Jesus came to him and said, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. May we say the same thing tonight in the presence of the one who has the power of life and death in his hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.